Well, we are in our second week of our kind of mini-series on faith that we started last week. In the uh, Red Pew Bibles, we'll, we'll be on page 1192. Uh, I don't know, like 10-ish verses, I think, in Hebrews 11. Um, I want to remind you, as you're flipping there, uh, this morning I drew a lot of pictures for you guys. So um, we'll see how well that goes. Um, I didn't draw them like by hand, but you know, there's a lot of uh, picture image to kind of put together a lot of pieces today. So I hope that it, it makes, it communicates and makes sense to you guys. Um, last week we talked about the definition um, found in, in many translations that I, I try to give my whatever defense to say, I, I think that's the correct kind of way to translate Hebrews 11 verse 1. And it's on the slide behind me. Faith shows the reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith shows reality. And we talked about um, snowdrops. You guys remember that illustration, right? Snowdrops that pop up in the dead of winter, thinking, well, how is there a flower blooming in winter? It's a sign that spring, especially in days like today, spring's real. It really is coming. There's a little bit of evidence that it is coming. And when we think of what faith does, it brings that future reality, that evidence that God's kingdom is real, heaven is real, he really is enthroned there. And he's in breaking into our existence, those heavenly realities and powers into the present. And when we believe that Jesus washed away our sins and died for us and conquered death on our behalf, that he really did send his spirit to fill us, we begin seeing that future reality pop up here in the present, and faith is what brings it about. Faith shows the reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so when Jesus showed up, he had a way that he talked about this, okay? And you've heard me talk about it before. We're going to talk about it for a few minutes this morning before we get into our text in Hebrews. When Jesus showed up, he had a message. Just the first words off of his lips in the very first sermon was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. All throughout the gospels, this is what's his consistent message. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's one scene when he actually cast a demon out of somebody, right? This, there's somebody that was literally possessed by a demon. He cast the demon out. And there was some bickering and arguing, saying, oh, well, he's casting demons out with the power of demons and Jesus. You can read the whole story in Matthew 12, 28. But in the middle of that story, this is what he says. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In God's place where he rules and reigns perfectly, there's no such thing as being oppressed by evil and fallen entities. That place is, is free from that because God rules there. And so when that event happened here on earth, Jesus said, hey, the kingdom just showed up. Another authority just showed up and cast out that other fallen authority. The kingdom of God came upon you. So our faith, right, it, it, it brings these things into our reality today. And so as we talk about this, this, this idea that we're, we're, the kingdom is here and we're praying for the day that, it, that when Christ returns and brings, you can read Revelation 21, he literally brings heaven with him 
and it comes to earth and all things are made new. Paul says that in that day, God will be all in all. Um, in the meantime, as we wait and we pray and we seek that day with, with joy and, and anticipation, um, the Apostle Peter wrote about the church, and he, he referred to us. Um, it, there's, there's kingdom language in the Gospels, and he uses uh, different language, kind of pulled from, some, from a lot of the Old Testament stories, but this is from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Speaking to early Christian communities that, are in, that were... Uh, in modern-day Turkey, um, in these ancient times, Turkey is mostly a, a Muslim nation today, but in those days it was almost exclusively Christian. Um, you know, the early church was um, located in that area. And this is, the, the, Peter is writing this letter to these early Christian communities dotted throughout what we call Turkey today. This is what he had to say to them. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He refers to these churches as a nation. Jesus said the kingdom is here, and Peter says, yeah, you guys are like a a nation. And it's a strange nation because this nation doesn't have geographical boundaries. We don't have a certain piece of land that we say as Christians, okay, this is our Christian territory. This is our nation for all the Christians in the world. This is our place. Whenever Christians did that in the past, it didn't go very well. You can read about that in history. Um, we have other things to say about that later on in our sermon with some modern things out there today. Jesus didn't have in mind a geographical boundary location when he set up his church. So I want to walk, break this down for you guys, all right? I have some slides. Here's the pictures I drew. Hopefully they're legible. Um, to begin with, here is earth and heaven, okay? We have these two, two, they're, they're, they're separate, right? We have earth and we have heaven, okay? Can you guys read that? Is that clear? Yay, great. All right. Now, the church is supposed to be a place where we see these two places overlapping. Okay, next slide. See the sea in the middle there? That's for church. And there's a verse, Matthew 6, 10. Jesus says, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so among his people, the realities of heaven, they overlap here on earth where God's people are present. The life as it is in heaven should be found amongst us. This is why we see the early church in Acts carrying out a lot of the same ministry and even with the same power that Jesus had. They preached the good news. They preached the gospel. They were healing the sick. They were also casting demons out of people. They were serving the poor. It's a place where weakness is strength, where our king was enthroned wearing a crown of thorns on a cross. So this church is his king on earth, okay? And so now to visually see this kingdom, normally when we think of a nation, this is what we think of, okay? American map, I think Maine kind of fell off the border there, sorry Maine. But we have, we have boundaries, like this is what we visually think of when we think of a nation. We have boundaries, here we are, okay? 
So for example, if I were to travel to England, one day I'll get there. I always wanted to go to England. A place I've always wanted to go. People, um, if they see me there, for better or for worse, I don't know, they say, oh, it's an American. Maybe that's like negative or positive. I don't know our old enemies' views of us these days. I don't know. But um, it's an American. Okay. They wouldn't look at me and say, oh, there's America. Right? Like that wouldn't be a, that'd be a really strange, I, I'm not America, right? America is a place. I'm an American, so I bring that identity with me, sure. But they don't look at me and say, well, there's America, this, this guy standing here, right? That's not how we talk about nations. But Jesus spoke of his kingdom like that. He spoke of his kingdom like that. His kingdom was kind of made manifest in, in words and messages, and miraculous events and powers. And when his people were gathered together, Peter said, yeah, there's the holy nation that God has gathered up. And he was writing to a bunch of different churches scattered in different little, different cities all throughout Asia Minor. And he said, there is the holy nation. There is the holy nation. So let's, let's keep going with our slides, okay? Um, if we were to find God's kingdom in our nation, because Christians are global, so let's stick with our nation, um, uh, well, first, there's an, I did add a slide. That's right. So God's nation are the people, okay? God's nation are the people. So the next slide, my little guy here. Go back one. There we go. I missed this one. Okay. We actually sung this, and I totally planned that with Joel. Not really. We, we, we sung this earlier. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, this is from Luke 17, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor would they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some translations say the kingdom of God is within you. When he becomes your king, there's a throne on your heart that gets occupied by King Jesus, and he makes his dwelling place in you. And that's when the powers of heaven and the joys of heaven all become manifest even in our own life. So we can say the kingdom of God is within us. You guys, you guys tracking with us? We're good? Okay. So the next slide, if you were to find God's kingdom, right, we have all God's people here. There they are. God's nation are the people. So let's go over to the next slide where we have our nation. So where's God's kingdom in America? Wherever a church is found. If those little people represent a church. We see places of God's kingdom all throughout our nation, okay? We're like little pockets of God's kingdom within a greater nation. This is the case for any nation on earth where a church is found, okay? So this is what this makes us, in other words, okay? What does this make us? And this is what this, these, these verses are about in Hebrews 11. It makes us sojourners. It's not really a word that we use often, Last week, you probably didn't use that word, you know, uh, in your week. Uh, it's kind of outside of the English vocabulary just a bit. But also the word in Hebrews 11, um, I'm going to use a different phrase. Uh, we become campers. Anybody like camping? It's a couple of you guys, okay? My daughter's camping this weekend with the scouts. Uh, poor girl in the freezing. Um, I haven't been camping in a long time. But uh, when you camp, you are essentially, even if for a weekend or something, you make your home in a temporary tent structure. And if you're, you know, you're renting a little square piece of land for a weekend, you're, you're living there, but you're not like permanently there. 
a tent can be set up and it can be torn down. You're, you're, you're inside of a tent, right? Here's, I didn't take that picture. Um, I wish I did. But you're in this like temporary place, okay? You're just, you're just dwelling there for a, a period of time, but not forever. So in a way, we as followers of Jesus are kind of camping out right now. Okay, we're going to see Abraham camping out in the promised land. We'll get to that here in a minute. But in America, we're just camping here. Because our nation, our final home isn't America. If you're a Christian in China, if you're a Christian in, in England or wherever, that's like your secondary citizenship. But this is not your final place. Your first citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says. And we're just kind of camping out here in the meantime. When God's kingdom comes and it consumes all of this world, then our home will be here. Um, one of my favorite artists and songwriters once wrote about this, and he said, I'm referring to this, this teaching from Scripture, he says, My heart is filled with songs forever, a city that endures when all is made new. I know I don't belong here. I'll never call this place my home because I'm just passing through. There's some nuance to there, okay? Because I do think that when our lives, yeah, we're just kind of temporarily living here, but the, we do need to live for the good of our nation, and that's maybe a sermon for a different day. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah has a lot to teach us there. But um, our faith does bring a glimpse of that future place into our world today, even though we don't see that place. And it's not quite here yet in its fullness because it does not all belong to Jesus, but it's made manifest among us. So in saying all that, it's kind of a setup for our text today, for um, the, the, the portions of scripture we're looking at in Hebrews 11. So today we're going to be looking at Abraham and his wife, Sarah. We're going to see their uh, life of camping out in the promised land. And we're going to see them also wrestling with the unseen promises of God that they hadn't, you know, seen yet and for decades wrestled with and hopefully gather some really meaningful things about faith along the way. Okay? You guys still with me? Anybody asleep? Okay, here we go. Verse 8, chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. All right, let's read this story. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, later known as Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what land, Lord? He says, I'll show you. I need you just to get up and go. Destination unknown. Most important thing for Abraham to exercise faith from the very beginning was just to get up and naturally go. There's a little preaching point in there for us even here in this room that we learn from Abraham, okay? Some of you might be here uncertain of your own destination in life. Not knowing where your own life is headed in whatever stage of life that you are at. But just like Abraham, you need to walk in faith. You need to walk in faith. God has not abandoned you so that you're aimlessly wandering. Take one more step of faith and keep walking towards him. So journey in faith is toward the destination. Abraham does get there, but let's read the story as he goes. Um, in the next verses in Genesis, beginning of verse 4. 
So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot, that was his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so think of like modern day Iraq, that's where Abraham was, okay, um, before he went to the promised land. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. He kept going through the land, kind of you think of north, and he works his way south. And he was living in his tent as he was journeying. And it's interesting because he keeps like camping out in this location. And then he doesn't stay there. He gets up and goes to the next location. And he doesn't stay there. He builds an altar. He worships, but then he goes on to the next place. He goes east of Bethel, go over to Ai on the east. It's almost like if you read that, like, what is he, what is he doing? You know, is he exploring? Like, why isn't he, like, building a house? Like, this is, like, the land for his inheritance. But he's just kind of, like, roaming around. The word can be sojourner in kind of modern-day language. Maybe he's, he's camping out, Right? But being after told, uh, being told that um, there's another little hiccup here, he said, uh, God said, your children, I will make as numerous as the seas. I'll make a nation out of you. The problem was this, was at 75 years old, he didn't have even, he didn't even have a son. That's a little problematic. A little late in life to have to wrestle with that problem, but he had no son. Nevertheless, he still went. Um, but being after, uh, being, but after being told this land will be his, um, even if he's wandering around, we'll deal with a son and problem in a minute. Maybe, you know, if this is God's handpicked land, maybe you're thinking like, this has got to be the most amazing place on earth. Like this has got to be just amazing. There's a problem though that he's faced with immediately in chapter 12, verse 10 of Genesis. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there because the famine was severe in the land. It's a bad first impression of this promised land. It's like, thank you, God, uh, famine. Like, really, there's no food in this land? Uh, this isn't looking the best, Lord. So he has to actually leave the land to go even find food to survive, right? And again, there's an element here that we need to talk about, right? Because in our own journey of faith, sometimes you may actually feel the same way. Right? God has given you all these promises and, you, and you're trying to walk in them and then a famine shows up in your own life and you're thinking, what, what kind of promise is this, Lord? What kind of life is this? You gotta wonder what Abraham was thinking when that happened, but nevertheless, he continued in faith because faith is, it makes evidence of things that we don't see. And he had what he did not see in his heart and faith, the promises of God. And even when things looked stark in front of him, he still continued on in faith. Uh, to, to continue on, we'll see in Hebrews verse 9 now. This is what he says about Abraham. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. It's interesting, right? 
like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, as did Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And there it is. According to the author of Hebrews, early on, Abraham understood that this land, it wasn't the final word. Like he walked around and saw it, and he was like, this is great. Famine, that's kind of hard, but there's more. Like this can't be like the, the end of things. There's something else that he was looking for, and he says, yeah, he's looking for the actual city of God as he was there. And as he was looking for it, he lived in that land like a foreign stranger living in tents. Um, I don't know if you ever like, had the, the realization like you're in a foreign land before. Um, I went to Italy once, and uh, I don't know if you, you know, done world traveling, and many of you have, but water in other countries, it just doesn't do the same thing to your stomach like water does in America. Um, any of you might know what I'm talking about. So I'm in Italy, and I realized like the yeah, the, this water isn't doing well, and nature was calling. But the problem was, I was in the middle of Rome. But if you're like in New York City or something, or like, it might be kind of hard to find a bathroom there, but you can usually just kind of find a bathroom, not a big deal. Not in Rome. Like public restrooms, nope. Just not there. I would go in and ask for a restroom and get like yelled at in Italian by somebody. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying, but clearly I asked the wrong question. Like, I don't know. I had to like bribe a guy like 30 euros to like even find a restroom somewhere. And it's like in moments like that where you're like, where, where, where am I right now? Like, what is this? I am not in America, clearly, right? You feel like a stranger. You feel like a foreigner in situations like that. But the whole point is that is supposed to be the Christian life. Like that's supposed to be what marks our life. That we are living as strangers in a foreign land. Our faith is wrapped up in God's place, but like Abraham, we realize that we're just sojourners. We're just camping out here. Our homes or wherever we live in here in America, they're just tents on temporary ground as we await the fullness of God's kingdom, the city of God, heaven itself to come down and meet earth. Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations that God had laid down himself. His heart was wrapped up in that place where God was. And he was looking for it and realized, oh, maybe, maybe it's kind of far off, right? But he kept looking for it and kept living for it, even though it was unseen. We're gonna go forward here. This is how our Red Pew Bibles read. It says, by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, he as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the sand on the seashore. Okay, nerdy moment. I like to have the nerdy moments. Is that okay? Nerdy moment. Um, our, our translation, our NRP Bibles, is a little dated. Every translation is, is built off of what came before it. And so um, today, there's been a lot of work in the original languages. Universally, all translations read differently today um, because we have a better understanding of the Greek that is used. And so the, the updated NIV puts the right focus, which is not Abraham. The focus becomes not we shift from Abraham to Sarah. So the, the modern NIV reflects this new scholarship and it reads like this. By faith, even Sarah, okay, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. A lot of times I get asked, a little side note, what translation do you read, Pastor Dan? Like, what translation should I read? Read more than one. That's important. 
Okay, read more than one. Don't pick one and like, you know, this is the, you know, no, like read more than one. Okay, that's my advice to you. So anyway, look in verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So similar to Abraham's looking for something even better than the promised land, God's city, Sarah was told in her old age that she would bear a child. Now, chapter 11, this is what we call the Faith Hall of Fame, okay? We spoke of last week, a lot of these people, as we learn about faith from their lives, they aren't perfect, okay? So let me walk down some, some weaknesses and some struggles that they had and this unseen promise of a child that was to come that would clearly have to be a miracle when it came, and how they struggled along the way. Um, the, after God's first time he communicated to Abram, Abraham and Sarah that they would bear a child, guess how many years went by before the child was born? 25 years. Okay, so just imagine being told clearly something by God, and five years goes by, seven, ten years, 12, 15, 17, 20 years, 22 after decades, you'd be like, I, I don't know, I, I'm thinking I'm, you know, this is, uh, am I going to keep waiting, right? And maybe some of you, like, feel that way, kind of stuck in waiting for things in your own life. And this is how they, they struggled with this. At one point, Sarah decided to take God's promises in her own hands, okay? And she said, husband, I have a great idea. Why don't you marry another woman, and then let her have a baby, and now maybe that will be God's promise. Bad idea. Bad idea. The whole idea of having a second wife, it just, in the Bible, it never went well. Like, there's nothing in the Bible that shows a man that has multiple wives and their family was, like, flourishing, okay? Um, look at David's life. You know, it didn't go well. Uh, Hagar was her name. He married her. Yes, they had a child. His name was Ishmael. Read the story. It did not go well. Faith means that we commit ourselves to God's plan and work. And we learn the wisdom of the sermon of, of what it means to, to wait and to listen and to let him act and us respond and resist the temptation to take things in our own control as if we are the king, as if we are the ones in charge. Because faith is trying to say, I know that God is in charge and I want that reality to be in my life. I'm clinging myself to that and waiting. And that's what Abraham and Sarah had to do. Uh, secondly, after uh, one instance when God reaffirmed in their waiting season, this process, that a child would come into their old age, Abraham actually laughed at God. Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her, not the, the, the Hagar, right? I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He laughed at God. Okay? Um, by the way, like we see his weakness here, but it's the real like emotion. Abraham didn't suppress himself before God. He just laughed and he said, really? Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He was laughing at it. Sometimes, guys, like it's okay to go before God with that kind of raw emotion. Don't be condemned when you feel things like that. Abraham, certainly, he just laughed. And then sometime later, we see um, something similar from Sarah. They, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? 
And he says, she is in a tent. Lord said, I will surely, this is sometime a little bit later, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Year 24, he says, next year you will have a son, Sarah. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced of years. The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. Both laughed at the idea, okay? But guess what their son's name was? Isaac, guess what that name means? The one who laughs. The one who laughs, right? Persevering faith means that we'll all be the ones who laugh when we finally see God's fulfilled promise before us. And they stand as examples for us. And I can mention how in verse 11 it says Sarah was enabled in, in the chapter of, of Hebrews, enabled to have children. That word enabled is actually the word that a literal translation would be like explosion, like power, like, you know. Um, that's what enabled her to have children. That's the very power of God. The same, um, the same, the same word is used when it, in Acts 1.8 when it says that, um, that the disciples would be filled with power from on high when the Spirit of God actually comes down. In this process of, of faith, in God's place, as this kingdom is made manifest, often we will see exactly what Sarah saw, which is these, these heavenly powers and realities like showing up in the present. This is why we as a church, like we, we are not afraid to pray for the sick. Because we know in God's place there's no sickness. And we say, Lord, may your power come down and heal this person as we anticipate and wait eagerly with faith for your place to finally come to this world. But in the meantime, Lord, give us a glimpse of it now. Bring your power and bring your healing. Every Sunday, if that's you and there's a sickness and you need to come and be prayed for, like, please, like, come forward and be prayed for. So such power can be made here, manifest in our own church. That is what's going on with Sarah. And that's what is brought about by faith. So to sum all of this up here in the back end of our sermon, here's how the author of Hebrews sums it up, considering Abraham, Sarah, and the last three from last week, which was Abel, Enoch, and Noah. In verse 13 in Hebrews, he says this, all of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. They admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. For the three, for the three last week, those three men, and Abraham and Sarah, the fullness of God's promises were not seen. They were just miniature kind of fulfillments. The big picture was not seen. It's like they were gazing upon a very distant horizon. They heard God's promises of a land, of a nation, of all these things. They saw the mountains really far away, but they weren't really quite ever at the foot of those mountains. They said they waved at God's promises from a long distance. They greeted them from a faraway place, but they never really arrived there. And they realized that as they were waiting, they were aliens and strangers. Okay, so remember that map? I think I have that map again. People in America, do I have that next slide? Maybe I don't. Um... As Christians, followers of Jesus, we learn that our first and primary home is Jesus, his place, and his kingdom. And even the Hebrew scriptures, when Abraham was told that there'd be an actual land to inherit, 
right? He, according to the author of Hebrews, he learned quickly God's city wasn't really there. And so in this, in this whole thing, this is what he concludes in verse 14. It says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Now, if they had been thinking of, a, of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. So Abraham gets his promised land, okay? And he realizes um, there's something more than this. There's a famine, right? It's not, it's like there's something more is going on that he's looking for. And he could have had an opportunity, especially when the famine hit. He could have been like, you know, I'm going to go back to Ur, like Haran, like I was just living. We had food there, like, and there's family. Like, I kind of just want to go back, you know. Um, he didn't do that, right? He went to Egypt and found food, but then he made his way back when the famine was over. He did not stop. He did not give up. And this is kind of the struggle in our own lives today. As we walk by faith, knowing that God's kingdom is here and among us, but not here in its fullness, knowing that Paul says one day we'll see face to face, but now it's like we're in our looking in a mirror with a very dim light behind us where we can't really see. It's all cloudy and kind of dusty until Christ returns. Hard to make out what the real thing is, right? Um, Abraham didn't return and go back. There was a generation in Israel that really wanted to. They were, they were free from Egypt, if you know the story, um, uh, by miraculous things that God did. And they were on the way to the promised land many centuries after Abraham. And uh, on the way to the promised land, say, oh, it's milk and honey, it'd be wonderful and great. But on the way there, they, had the, they found themselves living in tents inside of a desert, like cracked ground, really no food out there. And this is what happened. Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better to go back to Egypt? Would it not be better to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, Let us choose a leader. Let us go back. They wanted to jump ship. They wanted to start going after God's place and then reattach themselves back to where they came from. And this is kind of the, um, where, where we're at here in the back end of our sermon is the temptation to quit camping out in the name of Jesus, okay? And to make our home here on earth. To really just like build a house of foundations here and say, you know, like this whole following Jesus thing is hard. I hear all these great and wonderful promises. I know that I have salvation in him, but man, this is like a, it's a desert kind of wandering. And the temptation of our, of our weaknesses is to start trying to find the hope and joys of heaven inside of this globe on this earth as if it is found in its fullness here. And so then we get out of our tents as we're camping out and we start building a home here trying to find that joy that only can be found in heaven. It's like we are the ones that then go back to Egypt like those early Israelites wanted to do. The loves of our heart began being attached to things on earth. Um, I was a young man um, one day, um, some years ago, and I guess I'm still pretty young, but I was even younger at one point. And um, this was early on in my ministry career um, in Jersey when uh, a big hurricane hit, and there's a guy in our church who owned a beautiful house on the beach, just this gorgeous house, big bay windows looking out to just the endless, just the horizon. We used to go jet skiing back there. Like, he was just a really generous guy with his, with his house, and um, it was just a beautiful place. Hurricane comes, and we know that one of the hardest hit areas was, like, right there because it was really below sea level. 
Um, he was not in his, that house at that time. Uh, everything was locked down. We were able to get permission to get access to go check on his house. And so when we get there, we realize he had two and a half to three feet of water in his house. His lifetime project, which was restoring this old, I don't know, really rare car from 1930s, um, it was like completely just underwater. Like it was, it was wild, okay? And of course, everybody looks at me. It's like, you want to call him and let him know? Because um, he's waiting for us to call him. And so, yes, I was one of the people that called him. Like you're, you know, it's one of those moments where like, I just don't, like, I'm the messenger. This is a horrible message. Like your house is wrecked. Like it's, it's wrecked. You really can get tens and thousands, if not a hundred grand of like repairs. Like it's wrecked. So I call him. What is his response? I hear laughing on the phone. And he goes, huh, it's that bad, huh? What do you know? Well, thanks for letting me know. And there was like some work that we needed to do quickly that could kind of save some stuff, like cutting sheetrock and everything. And he was like, well, if you guys could do that, great. I appreciate it. And like he hung up. And I was like, that was weird. Does he care? He seemed unfazed by that. Unfazed. It's like a house that's worth well over a million dollars, right? I mean, unfazed. And I realized this man's heart was not wrapped up in his stuff. And I was blown away by his response of just, huh, well, that stinks. Thank you for your help. He was unfazed by it. And I really learned then, I had this lesson the whole rest of that week. I was like, how, can I live that way? Like unattached to this life here to where if I lose something like that, that I can be like, huh, I don't know. Okay, well, I'm, that stinks. Life goes on. His heart was not wrapped up, and that's what it means. He, was, he himself was camping out with Jesus on this earth, and he lost that house. He was like, huh, I don't know, life goes on. Is that, that's possible, friends, for you. Is that where your heart is in your own life? A second thing that's going to happen as we close, um, and this is an election year, so I kind of say this in the election sense. Uh, verse 16 closes like this. Instead, Abraham, Noah, Abel, they were all looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a better country. They were all longing for a better country. And it says, indeed, God has prepared one for them. He prepared a city for them. In election season, we're going to hear a lot of stuff thrown our way. Uh, the temptation that we're going to be told is that um, our heartstrings should be attached to this land as if it is our only home and as if it is our only hope in life. Um, for many in our country and its history who have experienced like oppression and justice and awful things in this soil, um, it's not a hard lesson to say like, yeah, it's a great country, but it's not perfect to my heartstrings. Like, uh, you know, there's some rocky stuff in our, you know, that's happened in my own family's life inside of this nation. So um, that lesson is, is, is not really hard for some people to learn in America. Um, but for others, we need that reminder to say this, this land of America is not your final home. I don't care what president, what candidate, what they have to say this year. We are citizens of heaven if you follow Jesus. That is our primary citizenship. That is our primary hope that drives us. Whatever house you live in in this country, that's just your tent, guys. You're just camping out here. Keep your eyes on that better country, even as we seek the good of our own country. That's always why Christians are persecuted in, in history, by the way, is when a nation realizes, oh, these people, like their first allegiance isn't us. 
Like, we can't actually control them. We have to get rid of them. You know, we have to, we have to like, shut this whole church thing down. And whatever it is in the globe, that's almost always the impetus for Christian persecution. There's a group of people who follow Jesus who says, my loyalty is not to this nation. I don't know what to say. My loyalty is to Jesus first. That's my highest loyalty. And that's when hard things happen. There's some segments of Christianity in 2024 that would say, let's make America a Christian nation from the top down. Um, And that's a different sermon for a different day. But I want to read you this in closing because I I resist all those things. And there's a, I think I've read this before, maybe some while back. It's one of the earliest letters written by a Christian after the New Testament. If you're familiar with the idea of apologetics, um, this is like the first apologetic ever written, defending the Christian faith from somebody else who who was curious. And right now, I want to call the worship team up, if we can, as we're getting ready to close us here. Um, This paragraph, I go to it often. I read this all the time. I really do. Because it's such a beautiful picture of our Christian life. And I pray that it can kind of direct and kind of put a little bow tie on the whole sermon today as we wrap up. So this is um, written, this is by a man written to his friend whose name was Diognetus, okay? We think it was written about 80-ish years after Jesus was rose, was resurrected, okay? This is what he says as he describes these, these new unknown kind of Christian communities that were popping up all over the Roman Empire. Here's what he says. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as a lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Check this out. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. In other words, this land wasn't theirs. They belonged to a different city. Friends, we belong to a different city. Amen. Jesus, I I thank you that you are our king, that you are our Lord, that you have prepared a city for us, Lord. Lord, keep the, 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 the desire of our heart on you, Lord. I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would just surface if there's strings in our heart that are attached to things on earth as if we were trying to seek the very joys of heaven here, Lord, apart from you. What misery that causes, what, what sadness, what end of life, just that there's, there's, there's no end there, Lord. Would you redirect us, Lord, to your better country? And may this church be that light of people who have found your better country, who are seeking after it, Lord, that even it shows up in our midst through your power and through your love and through your grace and through your mercy found among us, Lord, that Wilmington may see your kingdom here amongst Emmanuel Church, Lord. And as we pray these things, Lord, we also echo the prayer, the very last verses of our Bible, 
Jesus, please come, Lord. Make all things new, Lord. Bring that city down from heaven to make all things new. Lord, would you please come? But in the meantime, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us hopeful. We pray this in your name, Jesus, in your mighty and awesome name. Amen.